You're listening to Igniting Imagination, a podcast to spark the spirit within you from the leadership ministry team at Wesleyan Investive and Texas Methodist Foundation. Join our email listserv, contact us, and find more resources from leadership ministry at tmf-fdn.org. Hi, friends. I'm Lisa Greenwood. With the first of our bonus episodes, we are calling Summer Soul Tending. These past two plus years since the start of the pandemic have been dang hard, to say the least. And it feels like for many leaders, this summer is the first chance to really take a step away and truly experience a bit of Sabbath rest. And so we hope and pray that you are getting a bit of that Sabbath rest, that you're able to take some time this summer. And we hope this conversation will help further refresh your soul and spark that spirit within you, especially if it feels like you've been missing that spark lately. So my colleague, Blair Thompson-White, is joining me for these summer soul-tending episodes. Hi, Blair. Hi, Lisa. We're having a conversation today with author, speaker, spiritual director, and former pastor, Danielle Schroyer. Here's a short bio. Danielle spent over a decade in pastoral leadership and was a founding member of the Emerging Church Movement. She speaks often across the country on issues of theology, faith, culture, and story, and blogs at BeASoulNinja.com. We'll put that in the show notes. So Danielle is the author of Original Blessing, Putting Sin in Its Rightful Place, and Where Jesus Prayed, Illuminations on the Lord's Prayer in the Holy Land, and The Boundary-Breaking God, An Unfolding Story of Hope and Promise. She really is this beautiful soul, and I loved this conversation. Blair, what stood out for you? Yeah, I mean, uh, this was exactly what I'd hoped for uh, with these summer soul-tending sessions. And just for me personally, I think I got on the call uh, feeling a little drained today, and I left mm. the conversation with her feeling renewed and refreshed and centered again. So I just, I really think that's all the uh, invitation we yeah. need to offer our folks for listening because it, it it's worth a listen. And and I think part of it is because she centers us in her own practice and discipline of meditation and invites us to be the best version of ourselves as we encounter the world as it is. And I. I needed to hear that yeah, today yeah. for sure. And I I love that she does that in a very sort of real and raw and messy way. And, and so she <laughs> yes. doesn't like say, oh, and do this and do this. She kind of says, okay, this is hard. And so here's where, what I found hard and here's how I kind of worked through the practice. And I found that really inviting, frankly, and grace-filled. And so that was helpful to me. And, and the other thing I loved is how the conversation pivoted from what it means to be a soul ninja as an individual to the communal aspect. And so I, yeah. I, I hope you all hear some, I don't know, maybe fodder for a conversation that you might have with your own leaders about that. It's really powerful. Yeah, exactly. How do we discern together yeah. what is being birthed in the world? Um, that's a question I'm, I'm coming away with from this conversation. Yeah. Beautifully put. So let's listen to our conversation with Danielle. Welcome. We're so glad to have you with us. Thank you. I'm happy to be here. I was just looking at your bio and realized you have two degrees in religion. Uh, You've written three books. You've been a local 
church pastor involved with the emerging church movement. You are currently a sought-after speaker on issues of faith and culture. Sure. And and um, you write on your blog that the last five years, your curiosity about the spiritual path has taken you east toward the wisdom from the Eastern religious and spiritual tradition. So let's start there. Like, Tell us about your spiritual path and what your journey east has been like. Yeah, what a surprising little turn that has been. It actually, this is probably not what you think I'm going to say, but it actually all started when I was walking my dogs. (laughs) (laughs) My daughter was in middle school at the time. I was thinking about some people at church that were going through some things. And, you know, I was thinking about sort of how to companion all of these people in these different situations. And the phrase that came to me as I'm walking my dogs thinking about all of this was, well, really, because all the all the things that they were going through were very different. I mean, a middle schooler and like a 40-year-old, you know. But sure. the thing I wanted for them was the same, which was I said to myself, I, they, I just want them to learn how to be like soul ninja. Mm. And then I thought, what on earth is that? Like soul ninja? And so the whole rest of the walk, I just kept thinking, soul ninja? Soul ninja? What is what is that? And I ran in the front door and I told my husband, soul ninja. And he said, what? And I said, I don't know. <laughs> so I like wrote it down. And then I, because I'm a complete nerd, I read every single book about ninja in the English language, trying to figure out where this phrase came from. And then what happened is that I got this, this invite in my inbox from a leadership person that I follow, inviting people to be what was called warriors of the human spirit. And it sounded just like what I thought soul ninja meant. And I thought, oh, maybe this is where I go next. So I just took the rabbit trail and I applied and I got into this cohort and it ended up being this group of Tibetan Buddhist leaders. They, I mean, they, they, it wasn't a Buddhist cohort. It was a leadership cohort. They all happened to be Buddhist. And so they said, hey, a really important part of what we do as leaders in this time is that we meditate. And so I thought, oh, well, I'll be great at that. (laughs) I can pray, same thing. And then I got into the meditation and I thought, oh, dear Lord, this is very different. I am actually quite terrible at this. What even is this? And so uh, it was very humbling for me to realize that I can be pretty okay with prayer and I'm actually a hot mess at meditation. And, uh, but I also just realized pretty quickly that it was so helpful. I think single-handedly it has formed me the most in my spiritual practice. Uh, Meditation is the single most thing that has grown me up as a person and in my faith. Mm. And so that sort of set me on uh, this path to continue thinking about what Buddhism has to offer. And of course, I had already been dabbling in sort of the Eastern fathers and mothers of the church. And Mm. so... um, they were in that stream as well and part of that experience. So all of that kind of pushed me eastward, which has been a lovely journey. Oh, thank you for being so honest about that. I love this. <laughs> You're a hot mess of meditation. Still, even still. Yeah. So I, actually, I would love for you to talk a little bit more about that because I think, I don't know, I think there's a little shame that we kind of put on ourselves when we if we don't meditate or we think we should, or we don't think we're doing it well or all that kind of stuff, I think that happens. And when I say we, I mean human beings, but particularly clergy. And so Mm -hmm. would you be willing to like 
lift up the hood and describe that hot mess and, and sort yes. of what that looks like for you and how you've navigated that? And I, I think what's most helpful about it, particularly, and I think this might help clergy who are thinking about this, is that we do feel a sense of being comfortable in prayer because we know who we are in relationship to God. Now that always needs work too, you know? So contemplative prayer, centering prayer is when we really make sure that we're grounded in that belovedness. And obviously that means a lot to me because of original blessings. So I will never not say that's a huge deal. I think what was maybe most transformative for me with meditation is that I thought I was pretty fine with myself, you know? But when you sit in silence with yourself and you're not in prayer and you're just with your own thoughts without the context of God, it's a different ball game. Mm-hmm. And then you have to think things like, oh, huh, I didn't know I was still mad about that. Or that was an incredibly petty thought that I'm having in this moment that's supposed to be spiritual. Or for me, one of the funny things about the hot mess is that it is terrifying for me to think about that I did not know that I always have a song in my head I didn't know that until I started meditating. And I thought, my God, it's been here this whole time. Like I kept thinking, was there a time when I didn't always have a song in my head? And no. But I mean, literally at any point, at any time, if you see me on the street, you can say, what song's in your head? And I'll have an answer for you. There's, It's always running. It's a, it's, I have a radio. And so wow. to just have to deal with that and be like, how do I get out of this? Well, there's no getting out of this how to be okay with it, how to turn down the volume and just not give it as much attention. Anyway, all of that practice, I think what it does is help me just be with myself in the reality of who I am. And I think that is incredibly important for leaders to do because I just have to see myself exactly as I am. All the good stuff, all the bad stuff, all the stuff that's actually just boring and not worth conversation on either side of good or bad. And I think that helps me sort of operate from a, a more centered place because, you know, there's just no hiding from yourself if you sit and meditate in your own thoughts every day. So can you connect to that and the importance of not hiding from yourself and connecting and being in that meditation space, which you're distinguishing from contemplative prayer mm-hmm. and being in the presence of God and listening and all of that we might imagine with that. Can you, I guess what I'm saying is like for most of us, we're saying like, is this a both and? Is it an either or? Is it a like, and what's the relationship and, you know, those sorts of things. And so can you talk a little bit about that? Sure. For me, it's a both and. And uh, some people, a lot of spiritual directors actually just say, well, I see them as the same thing. And I think that's fine if that's how it operates inside a person. I I don't want to mess with that if that's working. For me, it, they feel incredibly distinctive. For me, centering prayer is about me communing with God and being in relationship with God and being in that love. So letting God love me and allowing myself just to love God outside of anything but the love, right? That's what that is for me. And that, I love that. I mean, that is what I think grounds me the most in my soul, right? And then meditation is, again, more just about me being okay with myself. And not that God isn't there. Of course, God is there. But I'm not thinking on God as a focus of my meditation. I am just watching my own being. I'm watching my Mm -hmm. thoughts. 
and trying to discern actually between all those thoughts and what my own being, my essence actually is. So how I do that, and it will sound like I have my act more together than I actually do, but how I do that on a on a week where it all goes according to plan, which is just very rare, but sometimes does happen, is that Monday, Wednesdays, and Fridays, I meditate, and Tuesdays and Thursdays, I do contemplative prayer. The reason I do one day extra of meditation is that I just think I need it more. Again, the contemplative <laughs> prayer, like, me and God are fine, you know? Like, I love God and just could sit around hanging out with God all the time. And so I like dropping into that space, but I it's not hard. The meditation is still hard. After all this time, after all these years, it's you know, John Bon Jovi's in my head and I just think bad thoughts about myself of like, really, honestly, (laughs) why is living on a prayer the thing I want to start the day with? And that just needs an extra day of practice. So, and then I take the weekends off because I hate routines and I don't like to be pushed into things. And so that actually keeps me more faithful to the Monday through Friday thing. If I know that I can take Saturday off and Sunday, there might be a liturgical thing that happens that serves as that. And that just really works for me. So Everybody's different, but that's kind of sure. how under the hood the thinking and the practice works for me. That's so helpful. Yeah, you know, I'm reflecting on I read something about Enneagram numbers and the spiritual challenge that we each need. And so I remember that for me it's it's uh solitude and silence is right there with it. Um so I think I think for a lot of us, I mean that covers a lot of the different types needing silence and solitude and and how hard that is because I need to be productive all the time <laughs> in order to be a value in the world. And I think that's really true of just our American culture, how we all feel this drive to, well, I should be learning something. I should be reading something. And so to actually sit and not be productive for a time and just be, be with ourselves, be with God. I mean, what a concept, uh, right? And so yeah. tell me, how did you start this? Like for someone that's listening or maybe for me, um, how would I start uh an experience of meditation. What would that be like? Yeah. yeah. I I used to tell people, start small, just do five minutes. And actually, I don't say that anymore because five minutes is like the wildest part of your meditation. The first five minutes are just the worst hot mess, you know? Actually, for me, I try not to meditate shorter than 10 minutes. 10 minutes is great, actually. There's lots of days when 10 minutes will just really do it. 20 is awesome. You know, 30 is hard. 30 is always hard, but it's good hard. So I say sometimes like start with maybe 10 minutes because around for me at least, and I think it's with some of the people that I work with, this seems to be a pattern that about around minute seven, some of the gremlins have cleared out. Like some of the monkeys Mm. have cleared out of the forest and John Bon Jovi, Jovi may still be playing, but you've turned it down a few notches, you know, just the beginning rush of of clutter, it takes me about six to seven minutes for that to get cleared. And then I actually can do the meditating that makes me really want to keep going. So I would say 10 minutes is a short first burst to try. And I have a, a cushion that I love, but you can also do it in a chair. A lot of people start in chairs and I think that's a great place to start. Put your feet on the floor I learned by Tibetan Buddhists, so you scoot forward and you want to not rest your back on anything because part of the practice, and I think this is so beautiful, is that you are in meditation showing up to your own dignity. And Mm. so you want to actually hold yourself in a posture. Teachers tell it differently, but one of my teachers talks about strong back and open front. So you want your back to be your dignity and your strength 
and you want the front of your body to be soft and compassionate and open to the world. And so even the posture itself teaches you something as you're standing there. So feet on the ground rooted in something bigger than you, which is the earth. And then you stand up in your dignity with your shoulders down. You know, you don't hold any tension and you just, you, you hold that with like dignity and pride, that sense of Mm. you're, you're choosing to be present to the world. The other thing that Tibetan Buddhists do is that we meditate with our eyes open. And I love that particularly if you're a contemplative prayer person, because I pray with my eyes closed and I meditate with my eyes open. And that really helps me discern between the two. You know, it gives my mind the cue of, are you doing the Christian thing or the Buddhist thing? And so I have different things that I look at because I have an altar or you can stare just, the point is really not to focus on a thing. So even if I'm staring at something on my altar, it's fuzzy. So you want to kind of look just not totally down, but not totally up, just kind of, a natural gaze about, I don't know, a handful of feet in front of you so that it doesn't get too fuzzy, but it doesn't, you're not really paying too much attention. And the other great little hack is that if you put your tongue on the back of your teeth, your mouth won't dry out. Such a good little hack because your mouth dries out. Yeah. Um, it's really distracting when your mouth gets dry and then you're like swallowing and then you're coughing and then you feel terrible for coughing, especially if you're meditating with a group of people. All that fixes itself if you just like put your tongue right on the back of your teeth. So that's the technical stuff. But really the goal in meditation is not to stop thinking. It's just not to attach to your thoughts. So that's the thing we get wrong is we're like, oh my gosh, I cannot Ah. believe it. I cannot stop thinking. Well, no, you're never going to stop thinking. The point is just to not get all worked up about it. So the minute you see that you've grabbed onto a thought and you've taken, let it, let it take you out of the train station, you just go, I'm getting off. You just get off. You're going to get on the train 78 more times. It's no big deal. If you don't get off this time, you can get the next station. But the point is to practice getting off the station, like getting off the train, not holding on to a thought and that sense of this is what detachment is meant to be, right? We see detachment, mm-hmm. I think, in Buddhists as like not wanting to engage with the world, but it actually means not overly clinging to the stuff that maybe we don't need to be holding on to. So our reactions, our emotions, you know, the song that's in our head, we just don't need to hold on to that stuff. It's not important. Mm-hmm. And it might be cluttering up the sounds and the, the, the insights that we do need to hear. So we just practice the letting go. So the whole practice of... Meditation is just about coming back home when you find that you've gone off to the races, which helps. And it's such a mind, body, spirit. It's it's the whole thing. I mean, that's even as you were talking, I'm I'm sitting up straighter. I'm paying attention to my feet on the floor. I mean, it, I do feel like in in our Western culture, we're so out of touch with our bodies and our and how that is connected with our spirit. So, so I, what I hear you saying is being a soul ninja involves mind, body, spirit. Involves taking time for meditation. I mean, what what else is a soul ninja? How do we how do we become soul ninjas? Yeah, this is an open question. I am on the hunt for the the unfolding answer every day. I think for me, though, what, what, what it feels like is that sense of, of living from your center so that you don't, you don't get knocked off your center quite as much as you may be used to. We'll never be batting a thousand at that, but I think it's true that I, I stay on my seat of dignity more than I used to because mm. I'm rooted 
And because I know who I am and because I'm okay with who I am, there's a lot of okayness. And because I have more space for things not to be exactly as I want them to be, because boy, will meditation do that to you because your brain is never as you want it to be. And so then when things in the world aren't as they are, you find that you have a little more patience and grace for that as well. So Soul Ninja to me is about that. It's about um, being able to be the best version of yourself as, as you encounter the world as it is, which is going to be wonderful and terrible and all the things in between. So I love this notion of Soul Ninja. And um, so it's making me think... Well, first of all, it's easier to think in terms of an individual being a soul ninja, and especially the way you've described some of the tools and what that means. And it's this beautiful and powerful picture of being our best beloved child of God self, right, in the world. So so then I wonder, what does that mean in community? What does it mean for a faith community or a local church to embrace being a soul ninja? Yes. Can you talk about that a little yes. bit? Yes. I love that because actually what's coming to mind is this idea that we all have that a ninja works alone, you know? Mm. Like if you think about it, if you, I don't know, I think yeah. a lot about ninjas. So Stealth. Many, right, yeah. It's one of them, <laughs> yeah. you know, and he's like uh-huh. going into the house and he's going to assassinate somebody and then be gone before they know it, right? But it's just one guy. It's a lone ranger <laughs> situation. You yeah, you're welcome. Let's go. <laughs> <laughs> um, but actually... The ninja lived in community and that's how they gained their skills because they had a master, Mm. you know, I mean, in the martial arts world, they had, they had mentors who for years taught them how to walk Mm. so that you couldn't hear them and how to be brave enough to walk over burning coals and all the things, right? How to sit underneath a freezing waterfall and just be cool with it. These were actual things they did. And so... That's actually a perfect example of what it is because I think it's the thing I care about most about what the church is meant to do, which is discipleship. It's this idea that we have village elders and mentors who, and hopefully the clergy service this, right? Who companion others in the faith in ways that help them grow and give them the skills and the tools that they need so that they can go be who they need to be in the world. Obviously not assassins, but you know, the metaphor breaks down, but you get what I'm saying. So I, I think that, that we have to become together. There is no independent becoming, and that's important to remember. And mm-hmm. also I would say that there is such a beauty in, I think one of the ways we can see Soul Ninja applying to community is that we also discern together what is being, what is being birthed among us. So Mm. for us as people of faith, as Christians, we would say we need to discern what the Spirit is up to here. What is the Spirit doing? What is the Spirit spirit calling us into? And I know that I was not always taught in seminary to do that. I was taught to to lead and to tell them things, you know, to have a plan. And actually, I think really the best thing that we can do is uh, in a clergy space is to hold that container and invite people into that process because it's not just one person that that discerns that, or at least maybe it shouldn't be. We could say that the wisdom of the community is always bigger than the wisdom of the one expert or the one professional Mm -hmm. Christian. And so if we invited people into this container that says, let's all, what does it look like for us as a church to live from that soul place? What would it look like? I think we would get deeper answers. 
Yes. And I, I love what you're describing. And, you know, if we think about the soul ninja as being our best beloved child of God's self in the world, that that same kind of statement can be true about a faith community, right? Being our best beloved community of God, if you will, um, in the world, right? And that that is, there's a collectiveness to that. There's a discernment to that. There's a being aware of one's identity and, and who we are as people of God and so I didn't actually have the answer when I asked you. Like I didn't have in my head what this would look like. I, I just was like, okay, how do we apply yeah, this to the church? Yeah. But how you've described it is is beautiful and profound and, and actually really motivating for what it means to be the church in the world, right? Well, it's really interesting yeah. too, because it dovetails so much with kind of where I am in my life right now, because I have been a spiritual mm-hmm. director, which is one-on-one, you know, soul ninja work one-to-one the mentor, well, although it's not mentor, but it's companioning someone towards the skills, right? But I was invited a handful of months ago to come and serve as a scholar in residence at a church here in town at Preston Hollow. And I said, yes, I'll do that if you let me come in as a spiritual director and do it in this kind of way. And actually, we had this conversation about what would it look like to spiritually direct a community instead of just a single person. And I I said, I want to do this because I think it's interesting that um, I'm so committed to the one-on-one and I, that's always where I I will primarily be called. How fun Mm -hmm. to like fly up 30,000 feet and think, okay, big longstanding organization with a history and a budget and a whole, you know, all the things a building, how does it work here? And so I spent six months discerning what has got up to in this place and um, doing listing sessions with the community there and with the leadership there. And primarily we, I ask those questions thinking about what it means for spiritual formation to happen. Like what, what does it mean for us to spiritually grow more deeply into who God is calling this one community to be? And I have found that to be such a fascinating process. And I have been encouraged by the way I've seen God show up in that. Wow. Okay. Well, now we're going to have to have you back uh, on the podcast to (laughs) tell us all about that and what you're learning. I mean, because that is just so in line with so many of the questions we're asking. And uh, But what what I hear you saying too, and and what we talk about often is the difference between decision-making and discernment and how often, and especially in this time of anxiety, we just want to make decisions because it makes us feel better. And and what you're inviting us into, what our Christian story invites us into is this posture of discernment, listening for the Spirit, taking time. I mean, uh, folks listening may go, what? She took six months of listening? <laughs> you know, I mean, I, but it really is, it takes time. <laughs> but, it, you know, it does. It takes time. I mean, it yeah. all goes goes back to, you know, this this posture that even develop and to take you're saying of just being fully present and and listening and, and showing up for the practice. I love that in the background, your people can't see this, obviously, but I can describe that you have this picture in the background that says, just show up. And there's something about being fully present in the moment to what God has in store and uh, receiving uh, each person as this beloved opportunity to to hear grace and, and the Holy Spirit. So anyway, I'm just making all these connections. I, I think we're one question I, I really want to 
hear your your thoughts on is is spiritual direction. Why is it important for clergy? Why is it important for people who want to develop their faith even deeper? Because uh, I really feel like a lot of folks don't know what spiritual direction is. Uh, and and when I hear you say spiritual direction, it's like, oh yeah, that sounds right. Let's do that. <laughs> so um, So tell us about it. Yeah, it's been interesting to watch. And I've only been a spiritual director for a handful of years now, and it's just exploded. And I think the need is becoming obvious. And I think the exciting thing about that is we don't know what it is because for so many years, it was, you know, only like Catholic and Episcopal clergy who had one. (laughs) Hmm, And it's sort of moved out of the building. And now lots of people realize that they can be 25 and in their first job and just needing a spiritual director. And of course they do, right? Just in the same, you know, in the same way that every single human could use that. So what it is, is just someone who's been trained to be a companion in listening to another person and to listen particularly for what God might be doing in someone's life and offering that perspective of what we see that might be different than the way that you're seeing it as you're living it, which of course you can only see it as you're living it with limited ways. So we always need somebody to help help us see our own lives more broadly and more clearly and maybe ask questions of what feels like it's attention for us or what feels like it's a joy for us and we're not paying enough attention to it or just helping us sort of follow the little breadcrumbs of our own soul journey so that we can so that we can feast, right? So that's what spiritual direction is and I'm really I'm really passionate about that for clergy because I know that one of the things that I felt even though I had the best church and the greatest people at that church and so many good clergy friends is that you still just feel alone because it's a lonely job, <laughs> right? Mm-hmm. There's only, even if you're on a staff of clergy, like you have your job and people expect things of you in that job and it separates you and connects you to all the people around you in church and goodness, that's so complicated. And so to go to somebody who can listen and hold you in the way that as clergy, you often hold so many other people that's just what keeps you in it. You know, you've got to have somebody that's supporting you in your spiritual life so that you can support mm-hmm. other people in theirs. And that's the reason why the Catholic and Episcopal priests have done it for so long, because they know that that's really the only sustainable way to keep going in this job. Is there a like a good time or a season when spiritual direction makes most sense. Yeah, people usually come out of need, right? So things are not going sure. great at the church and I just need to talk to somebody about it or something in a personal life is crumbling and I just need some perspective and or something really shook me in my world and it's made me question some stuff about God and I'm having a real hard time. Sometimes it's positive, like, oh gosh, I feel like this whole world is opening up and I want to be really faithful to it and I'm super excited, but I also need discernment and help. And then, you know, there's the people that come that they're like, gosh, I just think that I need this because I'm starting to feel tired and this is preventative maintenance, right? Some people come monthly. Some people, I'm not, some spiritual directors require that. I'm not one of those, probably because I don't go to my spiritual director monthly. You know, she's always there and sometimes it's twice in a month and sometimes it's, it's been three months and it's all the right time. I just think the soul doesn't have a linear calendar in it. And so I think people know when they need to reach out for an appointment and it's just the rhythm that they need. So yeah, people come for different reasons. And a lot of times it's in it's when a situation is hard and I think that's fine. Um, but it's also fine to just come when you feel like 
gosh, I don't know. Maybe I just do a check-in and I don't see this person for six months, but it's nice to just have someone hold my hand a little bit and listen. So good. So good. Um, so I wanted to give people an opportunity to to hear some of your writing because you are such a fantastic writer and the journey, I, I think it's helpful maybe before we invite you to read this piece from your blog, can you just tell a little bit about the journey you've been on and invited people on in the blog? Because it's, um, and I keep saying, when are we going to see the book? Uh, so I don't know if that's in the <laughs> works, but um, but I'm hoping it is. But I just, I love that you're taking us on the journey with you uh, because, you know, every time you post, it is, it's like, it's a new practice. It's a new insight um, from uh, the Eastern tradition. So I just, I want to encourage people to go and, and journey with you and they can sign up for the, the email um, and they'll come to your inbox. But yeah, so tell us a little bit your, about your approach to the blog and then if you wouldn't mind closing us with that uh, reading from it. Sure. So this actually started as a book proposal and um, I pitched it out to a few people, a quick little story, and had very sweet comments, which were basically, this is lovely. We would love to publish it. You, nobody follows you. <laughs> You need 500,000 <laughs> followers or else no thank you. And um, I politely, re- and they were like, here's the way you can build a brand. Da, da, da. And I was like, thank you so much. But I think I would cease attempting to be a soul ninja if I did those things. Just personally for me, that's what I discerned. And I think I'm just going to stick with this and I'll just give it for free. And that actually feels like a way better ending to this story. And a couple of the editors were like, actually, yeah, that that sounds really great. And we kind of hope that you wouldn't do it. You know, like, don't go through all the things. Yeah. <laughs> so I think there's just a lot of internal turmoil about all that. So I invited people in because what I realized is, obviously, as a Christian who got a religion degree and then went to seminary and got an MDiv, I have a lot of preconceived notions when they use words like gratitude or generosity or grace even, which comes up in Buddhist writings. Mm -hmm. And it's a very specifically Christian thing. And it is not what they're talking about at all. You know, it's it's adjacent, it's nearby, it's not totally foreign to that, but there's nuances there that I was missing. So I thought, well, what I actually need to do then is really practice it because otherwise I think I'm just going to Christianize Buddhism. And I don't think that's, that's not going to help me learn something Mm -hmm. distinctive that would be supportive of why I think having a little Buddhism on the side supports my Christianity. Right. So I started practicing and thought it would be fun to just invite whoever wanted to come along for the ride to kind of listen in on my thoughts and reflections as I think about and read about these practices. So the paramitas are kind of like the fruits of the spirit (laughs) for Buddhists the eightfold path is like right action, right speech. You know, um, how do you how do you show up in the world? There's all kinds of different things. I did lojong slogans. There's there's endless things that I can practice, and I do that, and then kind of write about them. So that's that's how that is. So this one is called awareness, communion with the universal mind. Awakened awareness is like communion with the universal mind. That's what Lama Surya Das says. I was thinking about that today when I was reading about the distinctions between Western and Eastern mindsets. In the West, we hold individuality to be so important. We can't fathom losing our identity. It's our life's goal. In the East, personal identity feels more like a burden. For many, dying means returning to your individual drop to the mass ocean, and it's welcome. It's a relief. This is so different, these two ways of seeing the world, and I believe both of them are true. There's something so particularly particular about who we are individually. And also, 
there's something deeply universal, wholly unified and unifying about our existence. It's shared. We are connected. Today, I've been thinking about how Janana, awakened awareness, is perhaps the intersection of these things. It's where we find ourselves so firmly rooted in the ground of our life right where we are, while at the same time we awaken to the universal mind that extends far beyond our own boundaries. We cannot hold it all. We can only hold the awareness of it. So I'm coming back to the idea I mentioned in the first post, also from Lama Surya Das, that Janana means not changing our lives, but awakening to the lives we already have. And what that means in part is awakening to this communion that binds us. Communion is such a beautiful metaphor. For me as a Christ follower, it's a beautiful ritual that expands our notions of space and time. It centers love as the guiding force of the universe. In it, we see this intersection where earthly elements carry a piece of heaven and the present is a portal to the past and the future. Every religion contains rituals that teach us these truths that awaken our awareness to see the communion of all things. So may you see a small glimpse of that communion this week. In your awareness, may you hold your uniqueness as well as your connection to the universal. And may we all be the better for it. Beautiful. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you for your writing. Yeah, thank you thanks for having me. For bringing us on the journey, like in the blog, but even in this conversation, I feel like um, you're so willing to, to lay it out there and invite us into it, which I think is an outward expression of this inner work that you're doing. So I see it as just such a beautiful gift to have been with you. Thank you. Thanks for a lovely conversation. Igniting Imagination is a production of the Leadership Ministry Team at Wesleyan Investive and Texas Methodist Foundation with excellent editing support from TruthWork Media. Check out our show notes and website for more information about all our guests and how you can follow them. I'm Blair Thompson-White, and from all of us at Leadership Ministry, thanks for listening.